After these things, Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. When Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, maybe 300 feet dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this morning as we study this revelation of Jesus, this appearance of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to expect and to relish and to look forward to those times when the risen Lord Jesus wants to appear in our lives today. Lord, may we be on the lookout. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For a period of time, in 2009-2010, a man named Paul Yarrow created quite a stir among the London news media. Yarrow, usually wearing a beige sweater, kept popping up in the background of live news reports. Sixteen times this happened, to be exact. Paul kept photobombing various on-location field reports. At first, Paul's identity was a mystery. He soon got the nickname, the News Raider. No one knew his motive. He kept appearing on Sky News and the BBC and Channel 4. Eventually, Paul identified himself in his mission. His appearances were to protest what he called the cutie culture that exists in television news. In Paul's view, it isn't fair that all the TV spokespeople are trim and slim and good-looking. He says there should be room for folks like him. And for a short period of time, Paul Yarrow kept popping up, making unplanned appearances to prove his point. 
And this is exactly what Jesus did after his resurrection. For a short stint of time, 40 days to be exact, Jesus kept popping in, photobombing the disciples, you could say. And these unplanned appearances made a point that we should always make room for Jesus. The man who rose from the dead that first Easter morning is still alive and he wants to be part of your life. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, to his apostles he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. Jesus' sudden and surprising appearances vaporized any skepticism in the minds of his followers. Acts calls these occurrences infallible proofs. They saw him walk, heard him talk. They saw his scars. Hey, there was no denying it. Jesus was alive. These divine drop-ins filled his disciples with faith and utterly convinced them that life with Jesus would continue. And here in John chapter 21, the Lord drops in once more. John begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again. And then he adds the words, and in this way, he showed himself. This is intriguing language. It's as if John is going to use this particular episode as a grid for understanding all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. In other words, the risen Christ followed a pattern. John is saying, here's how Jesus comes and goes. How he works here and there. How he does this and that. Why he will appear at any time and in any place. In Matthew chapter 28 verse 20, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he informed his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is a sense in which Jesus is always with us. In the person of the Holy Spirit, he indwells our hearts and empowers us and lives his life through us. But there is another sense in which the risen Christ is still dropping in. Jesus promised in Matthew 18 verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And throughout the book of Acts, there are occasions when Jesus reveals himself in a special manner, and he performs an extraordinary work. All Christians know from experience that there are moments and places where the presence and power of the risen Lord is expressly sensed and tangibly felt. I believe John chapter 21 serves as a blueprint to help us recognize the risen Lord's appearances in our lives and to cooperate with his activities. This morning, I want to divide my comments under four headings. First, where Jesus shows up. Second, when Jesus shows up. Third, how Jesus shows up. And then fourth, why Jesus shows up. For I'm convinced that the risen Christ wants to drop in on us. The Savior is willing to show up in your life, yet you need to know where and when and how and why to look. Well, first, I want you to notice where Jesus shows up. 
he engages his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's odd, but Jesus doesn't appear in a synagogue or in a religious shrine or even on the Temple Mount. Rather, Jesus reveals himself in a very regular and ordinary and nondescript spot on the bank there on the lake. And the guy's doing is something as humdrum as fishing. You know, when you survey the dozen or so post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you'll discover them all, without exception, occur in common everyday places. His appearances made the occasion special, but he never revealed himself at a special occasion. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, it was always to interrupt the mundane and the routine and the daily of life. Think back to the events of that first Easter and the appearances of the risen Christ. What's so special about two dejected disciples walking down a beaten path from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Or ten frightened men cloistered away in an upper room? Or a woman weeping in a garden? Or here in our text, a handful of fishermen working their favorite bed there on the lake? You know, today when you go to the place on the shoreline, where this event is believed to have happened, you find a little garden there in a chapel known as the Church of the Primacy. The site has been transformed into a sacred spot, into holy ground. It's a stopover now for Holy Land pilgrims. But in Jesus' day, it was just a spot. There was nothing religious or special or sacred or holy about the place. It was just a plain, unmarked spot on the beach. You could call it a bore on the shore. In essence, for these disciples gone fishing, Jesus appeared to them at work. Fishing was their trade. This would be the equivalent of the risen Christ appearing to you tomorrow at the office or in the break room or on the assembly line at work or on the martyr train getting there. You know, we expect Jesus to show up in church at a religious venue, in a sacred place. Yet his post-resurrection appearances all occurred in secular settings. Jesus was always dropping in on everyday life in run-of-the-mill places. He invaded the daily. I'll never forget the night that Jesus met me in a saving way. It didn't happen to me in a church building. As a matter of fact, at the time, I was pretty turned off to church. But I was learning about Jesus, and I knew he was Lord. And I realized I needed to surrender my life to his will. So in the summer of 1978, I rolled my car into a gravel parking lot, knelt down at a concrete picnic table. There was no stained glass, no praise band, no pastor on duty. But trust me, Jesus showed up. The living Lord forgave me of my sins, my many sins, took over my life, and I've never been the same person since. If the only time you look for Jesus is on Sunday mornings in a house of worship, no wonder you miss him. Open your eyes. He's out and about. You're liable to find Jesus at the baseball park or on the roadside or in the movie theater or hanging out in the backyard or cruising with you in your car or at your neighbor's house. Not just the sacred, but the secular is his domain. Scripture says the earth is his footstool. Reminds me of an article I read in Campus Life magazine. It's entitled, 
A tisket, a tasket, I'm coming out of the casket. A South African named George Sagui decided to fake his death. He wanted to test his family and see what they would say of him after he was dead. Imagine in the middle of the pastor's eulogy, the guest of honor pops up out of his coffin. Surprise! George said later that he was going to keep the casket for his real funeral. And let me suggest if he keeps pulling stunts like this, it'll be sooner rather than later. But with Jesus, it was no joke. He vacated his tomb. He shed his shroud. In essence, he popped out of his casket. And Jesus heard what his loved ones had said about him after he was dead. He saw how they treated him. You know, I'm convinced that most Christians fall into lapses where we treat Jesus as if he were dead, even when he's not. We forget that the Lord lives to work in our lives today. And just about the time we begin to eulogize Jesus, he pops out again in a dynamic manner. He surprises us all over again. He shows up in new and startling ways. When I was enrolled at the Calvary Chapel Bible College in California one weekend, we drove over to Las Vegas and we were going to spend a few days witnessing on the streets. It was an exciting adventure. We talked to scores and scores of people. A few of them were sober. I had a roommate who was broke financially. In fact, he was down to his last quarter. He wasn't sure how he was going to make it back to the campus. We were in Caesar's Palace, no less. When I saw Lee stick that quarter into a slot machine, he actually laid hands on top of the slot machine. (laughs) And I'll never forget the prayer that he prayed. Lord, I know this is a den of greed and wickedness, but I also know that you're above all and you can use whatever you choose to bless your people. And so I ask you, Lord, to take my quarter and multiply it. Then he pulled the lever on that one-armed bandit. And I'm not kidding you. The window read, not lemon, 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 not apple, 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 but seven, seven, seven. 200 quarters came rumbling and tumbling out of that machine. And you should have seen the look on the lady's face sitting at the slot machine next to him. She almost fell off her stool. I wouldn't be surprised if she's still there 40 years later with her hands on that slot machine praying. Understand, I don't believe that God manipulates slot machines on a regular basis and advocates gambling. But he used that incident to show me that he's far bigger than the box I had him in. The living Lord Jesus can work anywhere, at any time, in any way he chooses. So where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. But when does Jesus show up? And here's the answer. When you least expect him, but when you most need him. When you least expect him, but when you most need him. Notice the disciples now. They're out in the water. They're busily working their nets. Jesus appears on the shore, but they don't know it's him. Perhaps it was still dark. Maybe they were a little too far out in the lake to distinguish his features. Or maybe they just didn't expect to see him and they didn't bother to scrutinize the stranger. Jesus wants to reveal himself to us, but often we don't recognize him either. 
You know, it's suggested here that the reason the Holy Spirit names only five of the seven fishermen in the boat is so that you and I can take our seat as the unnamed two. Often the reason we don't recognize the living Lord Jesus is because we don't expect to see him. Reminds me of the church Easter pageant where the play's director was casting roles. One little boy insisted on being the stone in front of the garden tomb. The director asked him, said, don't you want to have a speaking part or a role where you can be more involved? The little guy was adamant. He said, no, I want to be that rock. Well, after the performance, the director was still curious about the little boy's choice of roles. He asked him, he said, why, do you, why did you want to play the rock? The little boy smiled and said, oh, it felt so good to be the first to see Jesus alive. And this is the meaning of Easter. The stone was rolled away. And we too need to be moved by the resurrection. Don't misunderstand, Jesus is alive and well, whether you believe in him or are affected by him. But the stone was rolled off the mouth of the tomb by the risen Christ, and the truth of the resurrection ought to move us as well. It should get our faith rolling. The living Lord wants to reveal himself to you, and I believe he drops in on us far more than we realize, but we don't see him if we're not open and looking. And one of the biggest causes of our blindness is our own self-sufficiency. We don't look for Jesus because we've learned to get along. We do just fine without him. Remember, Peter was a fisherman by profession. He had bumbled and stumbled as a disciple, but he knew fishing. And here he's falling back on a former confidence. That is until Jesus strips him of his self-assurance. Notice here the Lord orchestrates a little divinely inspired emptiness. Notice we're told at the end of verse 3, they caught nothing. Peter and the professionals had fished all night without a bite. Their fishing had been a flop. Notice God sets up his disciples for a visitation and a revelation by allowing them to labor all night in vain. They burn up their energies. They end up exhausted. It's a season of failure that primes them for an appearance. Realize nothing clouds our spiritual vision more than our own successes. You see, it's hard to see Jesus when our nets are full, when we think we're something, when we think we've got it under control. You're less likely to see the risen Lord when it's all about you. That's why Jesus lets the disciples try their hand at fishing and then sees to it that their nets are empty. Hey, when does Jesus show up? When you least expect him, but when you need him most. We'll see Jesus when we're most aware of our need for him. But the next question is, how does Jesus show up? And the answer here is in a series of subtleties. In a series of subtleties. Seldom is an appearance of Jesus announced by angelic trumpets or preceded by handwriting in the sky. Whenever the risen Christ has appeared to me, it's not been with cracks of thunder and blinding lights. You remember the occasion when God revealed himself to Elijah on the top of Mount Horeb. 
At first, Elijah beheld a mighty wind that ripped open the side of the mountain. The wind was followed by an earthquake that shook the ground and rattled the mountain. Then a blazing fire. But the Bible says that God was not in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. Finally, we're told that Elijah heard a still small voice. And that was the voice of God. See, when God appears, don't expect a drum roll and fanfare. He speaks in quiet whispers, in gentle nudges, in calm assurances, in eternal priorities, in godly desires. Hey, no parent likes to yell at their kids. In a perfect world, you should be able to get your child's attention with a whisper or even a wink. Likewise, God doesn't like yelling to get our attention. God comes to us through a series of subtleties. No one thing here tips off the disciples that the man on the shore is Jesus. It dawns on them gradually. The truth hits them only after a sequence of perceptions. Notice Jesus' first words. He says, children, have you any food? This is the question every fisherman gets asked. In essence, hey, you guys caught anything? Ryan reminds me of the old fisherman who had his hook in the water. He was asked how many fish he caught. He replied, I'll tell you, if I catch this one I'm after in two more, I'll have three. Well, the disciples here are a little less optimistic, but they're a lot more honest. They answered the man, none. Notice, too, when Jesus addresses his disciples from the shore, he uses the word children. One commentator translates the Greek phrase as lads. Jesus was addressing his disciples with a phrase that communicated affection and intimacy and friendship and caring. This was the first in a string of subtleties. See, his greeting communicated love. You remember back when Jesus first appeared to these same disciples in the upper room, the first words he spoke were, peace be with you. See, some of us don't look for Jesus to appear because we are afraid of his wrath. We think he's angry with us, that he wants to judge us. As a matter of fact, rather than look for the risen Christ, we failed him so often, we spend most of our time trying to duck him. But believe this. You have nothing to fear, for Jesus loves you despite your sin. If you're a believer in Jesus, he's already forgiven you. He wants you to experience the peace that a renewed awareness of his presence brings. These disciples are wayward kids. They're prodigal sons. Yet Jesus isn't ashamed to call them his lads. And this must have got them thinking. It was the first subtlety that pointed to Jesus. Perhaps they began to wonder. Maybe they even asked each other, isn't it weird for a stranger to call us friends and really be concerned over whether we've got anything to eat? Well, the second subtlety is Jesus' instructions. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Though it didn't register at first, the disciples had heard this before. You remember back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called Peter and his pals to follow him. It was after a similar episode. They had fished all night and they had returned to shore empty-handed. And that's when Jesus told Peter to row back out, to throw in his nets. And you remember the story, they took in a miracle catch. 
in a subtle way, here Jesus is reminding them of the first time they realized that he was the Son of God. Now, three and a half years later, when Jesus re-enlists them into his service, he primes the pump by using the same circumstances. He stirs up the beginnings of their faith. You know, when God brings his former works to mind, it's often his way of preparing us for a new and future work. God isn't reminiscing just for old time's sake. God isn't sentimental without a purpose for being so. When God recalls a past victory or lesson, it's to prepare us for lessons and victories that lie ahead. As the fishermen are laughing and celebrating and dragging in their stretching nets, it suddenly hits John. The string of subtlety suddenly comes together. All the tumblers fall into place. The name children, his caring, the circumstances, now this miracle catch. The puzzle pieces come together. This is Jesus. And as soon as it hits him, John shouts, It's the Lord. And I love that line. What an incredible experience it is when suddenly you recognize his purpose behind the randomness. I mean, you weren't expecting it. You didn't see it coming. But a miracle sneaked up behind you and slapped its hands over your eyes and said, Guess who? By then you know it's the Lord. You know, there's an expression among Christians that sums up these experiences when Jesus surprises us, when the subtleties mount up, and when you conclude it's the Lord, someone will often say, that was a God thing. You ever heard that? That's a God thing. And that's John's reaction here. When it dawns on him that the man on the beach is Jesus, John is the first person to shout, it's a God thing. It's the Lord. And notice John is the first of the disciples to recognize that it's Jesus. Now, he doesn't call himself by his given name. He uses his pen name, the disciple who Jesus loved. And that points to a profound connection. For the disciple that had cultivated the most intimate relationship with Jesus was the first to recognize him. You can recall that John was the disciple that leaned in on Jesus at the Last Supper. At the cross, Jesus committed the care of his mother Mary over to John. Jesus loved and trusted John. I believe Jesus loved John so dearly because his love was so quickly returned by John. And understand the pattern. The people who love Jesus most are usually the first to sense his presence. I'm convinced Jesus is constantly dropping in on us. But if I want to be quick to recognize him, then I need to cultivate a personal and spiritual intimacy with him. It's when I spend time with him and I read his word and I pray and I let his spirit stir up my passions and enlighten my understanding. Then I'm quick to say and see it's the Lord. I'll be first to recognize the subtleties. Well, so far we've answered three questions. Where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. When does Jesus show up? When we least expect him, but when we need him most. How does Jesus show up? In a series of subtleties. And now our final question, why does Jesus show up? 
And there are two ways I want to answer that question. We could put it, Jesus drops in on us to turn our ship around. And this is what happened to the disciples. They were busy with the business of fishing until it dawned on them that the stranger on the shore was Jesus. That's when they immediately steered their ship in his direction. They turned their little boat about face. In fact, Peter couldn't even wait to turn the boat around. When he knew it was the Lord, he left the boat behind, dove into the lake, and swam for the shore. And you got to love Peter's enthusiasm even while you mourn his lack of common sense. Read verse 7 again. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Okay, Peter, why are you putting your coat on and then jumping into the water? Obviously, Peter's only thought was get to Jesus. Get to Jesus. And this is what happens when you see that it's the Lord. Jesus eclipses all your other concerns. When Jesus shows up, it creates a shift in direction. When he crosses your path, your path gets altered. Jesus comes with new bearings, with new coordinates. He plots a new course. Jesus takes over the steering in our lives. A second way we could say it would be when Jesus drops in, it always produces a transformational moment. Life never remains the same after Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus doesn't come to endorse the status quo. No, he rocks the boat. He comes to do a new work. Jesus is into transformation. He works big changes. Raymond Donovan once served as Secretary of Labor under President Reagan. Donovan tells about a trip he made with the former president on Air Force One. Initially, he was in the rear of the plane with the other staff. But halfway through the flight... He was asked to join the president for lunch in his private quarters. Well, Raymond Donovan, he straightened his tie, thought to himself how important he was. He would be having lunch on Air Force One with the president of the United States. To top it all off, when he walked into the president's stateroom, the red phone, the hotline, suddenly rang. Donovan thought, wow, what a moment to be with the leader of the free world. He's about to deal with a national emergency, and I'm going to be right by his side. Well, Reagan calmly picked up the phone, listened for a few short minutes, and then he asked, what are my options? Donovan's heart skipped a beat. His mind started racing back and forth to the possible international scenarios that might be brewing. Finally, the president answered, okay, I'll have the iced tea. <laughs> and he hung up the hotline. So much for Ray Donovan's transformational moment. But know when Jesus invites you and me for a meal, you can be sure that he has very sensitive and strategic issues to discuss. He deals with matters of eternal significance. When the disciples came ashore, they found a fire of coals and broiling fish. But this wasn't your typical fish fry. Here's where the Greek words translated coals and fish come in handy. Coals is the Greek word anthrakia. It's the same word used for the fire of coals that Peter huddled over several weeks earlier on the night that he denied his Lord. 
The word fish is opsarion. The word John used to describe the two fish with which Jesus fed the 5,000. And it was immediately after that miracle of multiplication that Peter had recommitted himself. Jesus had asked the disciples if they were going to leave him like the multitudes had done. But Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The point is, when the risen Christ dropped in on Peter, he dropped right into his heart. He dropped in right where Peter was at with the coals. He takes Peter back to the night of his defeat. And with the fish, he reminds Peter of his commitment to still follow. And when Jesus appears to you and me, truth comes out in the open. Skeletons topple out of the closet. Smoke screens dissipate. The real issues suddenly surface. When Jesus drops in, he always drops right into our hearts, right where we're at. He forces us to face the truth about ourselves. Jesus can't turn our ship around until we recognize we're headed in the wrong direction. I had a friend of mine who used to drop in unannounced all the time. In fact, early in our marriage, he would drop by the house and he would surprise us with a visit. He'd show up, knock on the door. Even if the door was unlocked, he'd walk on in. And with my newlywed wife's gentle coaxing, I explained to my friend that this was no longer acceptable protocol. But realize, this is exactly how Jesus rolls. I mean, the risen Christ has no qualms about dropping in on you unannounced. He comes when we least expect him, but most need him. Jesus loves us, and he wants to turn our ship around. In verse 12, Jesus is standing on the beach when he invites his disciples. Come and eat breakfast. And it's striking to me that Jesus invited his disciples not to lunch, not to dinner, but to breakfast. The first meal of a new day. This whole experience in John 21 happened early in the morning. In fact, most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances occurred in the morning. His first drop-in to Mary outside the tomb was at dawn, the break of day. It's appropriate that all this in John 21 dawns on the disciples at dawn. For whenever Jesus drops in, it marks a brand new day. Recall how we divide history. There's B.C. and there's A.D., B.C. stands for before Christ. And of course, B.C. is also the name of a powder that relieves headaches. And to me, this is so fitting for my life before Christ. The B.C. days was just that, one big headache. A.D., though, is a Latin abbreviation, Anno Domini. It means year of our Lord. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that marked a new era, a new day on earth. A time now influenced and dominated by Jesus. Whether you're 13 or 43 or 83, when the risen Christ drops into your life, it marks the beginning of a brand new day. Jesus invites us to breakfast, not nightcaps. And notice again in verse 12, Jesus says, come. Author John Phillips makes a big deal of this word come. He writes this, 
come. It is the grandest word in the gospel. It dissolves distance. It brings saint and sinner alike to him who takes away sin and sadness and replaces them with joy and gladness. Listen, Jesus says to us, come. For centuries prior to Christ, man had been separated from God. We were barred from God's presence. In fact, when God revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, they roped off the mountain so that no one would wander too close. Imagine God was off limits. But what Jesus did on the cross caused God to bury the hatchet. God is no longer angry with man over his sin. Jesus has paid the price, and he's won God's forgiveness and acceptance. And today, just as he did on the shore that morning, Jesus invites whosoever will to come. This one marvelous word ends our imposed separation. You and I have been invited by the risen Christ to come to him. If you're not a Christian, here's God's word to you today. Come. Come to him. He'll wash away your sins. And if you are a Christian, yes, Jesus is always with you. But he also wants to make his presence known to you in a personal way. He wants to drop in on you. That's why we should prepare our hearts with faith and with anticipation so that when the risen Christ does drop in, you and I will be the first to say, it's the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning.